Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Paul Dye is here, legendary NASA flight director, pilot, experimental aircraft builder, and author. And I am just thrilled to hear about his experience and and over so many different things from his time at NASA all the way through kit planes and uh, all the other things going on in his world. Before we get started, just a couple things. First of all, we are in the last days of this version of the Fly to Win Challenge. We're giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset on September 1st. All you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app uh, or socialflight.com. Be sure to use the mobile app on your phone to go fly and check in at any airport. Even doing that once in our prize period gets you entered in to win in our Fly to Win Challenge. And of course, Social Flight is here to support all of general aviation. Everything is completely free, and it is just a great way for you to be able to get out there to see tens of thousands of aviation events happening, destinations. We have a single button to see where the nearest uh, $100 hamburger is, although probably $200 hamburger with the way fuel prices are right now. But it's just we are here to get you out and flying and support general aviation as a whole. We hope you'll go check out socialflight.com in order to make that happen. Now, Paul Dye retired from NASA in 2013 as the longest serving flight director in United States history. He has over 40 years of aerospace experience on everything from Cubs to the Space Shuttle. Known to many as the editor of Kit Planes Magazine, Paul is a commercially licensed pilot with over 5,000 hours in many different types of aircraft. He is an aircraft builder, an AMP mechanic, an EA technical counselor, and a flight advisor. His new book, Shuttle Houston, which I will show right now again to everybody uh, here. Uh, I just finished this book. It was absolutely wonderful. And his new book, Shuttle Houston, is an absolutely riveting and informative documentary of the space shuttle program told from the position of flight control and Paul's unique perspective on this historic program. I'm gonna bring Paul on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Paul Dye. How are you doing, Paul? Great, great. Thank you, and uh, welcome from uh, from Nevada. <laughs> so, Paul, I, I you know I want to start. I love obviously background and social flight live is just about the you know inspiring people in general aviation. I can think of of very few or none better than yourself based on on your history. And I have to tell you, having just finished your book, Shuttle Houston, it's fascinating. It is an amazing way to like put yourself right into the shuttle program. And it starts with how you how you got involved in this, really your background. So tell me a little bit about where you came from and how as as really as a young person you found yourself involved with NASA. Yeah, well, uh, the, the short story is uh, my mother says the first word I ever I ever said was I looked up, pointed at something in the sky and said air poo. Um, so I guess I, I have no no idea why I've been fascinated with flying machines all my life. But um, I built I did the whole model rockets and model airplanes and, you know, you control and the like. And about the time that I was going to have enough money to actually buy a radio control set. I got involved with a, an FBO and Explorers post uh, that was sponsored by an FBO um, in Minnesota. And he had two wrecked J3 Cubs. They were actually L4s that he bought surplus. And uh, he put us teenagers to work rebuilding them. So we kind of became hangar rats at age 13 and, um, uh, you know, hung out at the airport and worked on Cubs. And when somebody, somebody was taking something up for a test flight, we hopped in the right seat. So by the time I actually started flight training in the Cub that I helped restore uh, at age 16, I'd flown a fair number of airplanes. And um, 
Uh, of course, soloed when I was 16, had to wait till I was 17 to take my uh, private check ride. Um, and then, then I was ready for college. And of course, uh, that was a kind of a question of, um, of uh, having barely enough money to even go to college, much less fly. Um, so I went to the University of Minnesota, was working on my degree in aeronautical engineering. And, and my, my secret idea was just to go to work for Balanca Aircraft just up the road, you know, 100 miles in Alexandria. My junior year of college, I heard that they'd gone, gone out of business and I was devastated. You know, at the time I was too naive to understand that that's the natural cycle of aviation is these companies go down, they come back, they go down, they come back. And I figured, well, that's the end of that option. And um, so uh, I was given the opportunity to apply for a NASA, uh, it was a co-op program, a kind of an internship co-op program where you go to school every other quarter and you go to work every other quarter. And um, I sent in an application to Houston and I had no idea what, what I was gonna do, or, uh, uh, but I got this letter back saying, please report building 110 on such and such date. Um, you know, you're, we're offering you a GS1 job, which is the base level, you know, uh, uh, government service job. Um, and I did, and when I got there, I still didn't know what I was gonna do. And, and, um, and, and they, after a day of inter, inter, uh, introductions and signing up for health plans and the like, they took me to my first assignment. And uh, it was uh, an operations group uh, getting ready to fly the space shuttle in mission control. Um, and I very quickly realized that that's what I'd been training for all my life. I was I was working my way through college as a uh, as a scuba diving instructor and technical diver, and I'd been a pilot. And so um, I later asked why they asked me to go to work in that organization, and they said, "Well, we looked at your resume and said, you know, you really know how to." how to put your own little pink body at, at risk. And therefore you're probably are good at making decisions about that kind of thing and risk management. So, so that's how I ended up in mission control. That's, that's amazing. And I, I love, there's one story that you tell where e even when it comes to like that application, I, I don't know if you had targeted NASA before that, but you know, you, you mentioned a, uh, a, like a professor that almost with disdain was like, and, and there's this, yeah. Co-op yeah. obligation. <laughs> yeah, he he was uh, our our aeronautical engineering department was a very theoretical department. We had, I think we had one one professor who'd actually been a working engineer um, with Northrop on the flying wing, but everybody else was a theoretician, and so he he didn't think very much of this whole thing, and he kind of kind of threw this application on the table in the front of the room and said, if anybody's interested, you know, you can pick this up. And I just made one of these instant decisions. I said, I could do that. And I went and grabbed the piece of paper and walked out of the room so nobody else had a chance to apply. <laughs> so it's not like there wasn't a little bit of a competitive uh, side going on early yeah, on. Yeah, there, there, competition, I guess, kind of shows up throughout my life. Um, but we always like to say that we weren't competing to beat others. We were just competing to be the best we could be. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yep. Wow. So, um, t first of all, tell me a little bit about your attraction to Balanca. I mean, that is a very unique aircraft. Was it just the proximity or is this somehow kind of tied to the rest of your life and interest in unique aircraft? Um, that is unique. I think I like the unique aircraft. It was close and I loved the wooden wing. I just, I mean, when I was a, a an explorer, an explorer scout, uh, and we were working on these, J3 Cubs, every once in a while, the adults would load us up in their Cessnas and and um, uh, and Pipers, and we'd fly up there for a field trip. And I think the craftsmanship that it was involved in, yeah, I, I think I always tend to gravitate towards unique and interesting airplanes. And, you know, the Viking was a pretty unique and interesting airplane. Absolutely. It is. It, and fast. So it's it's a fast, performer. It burns a lot of gas. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not the most efficient, but it's a, uh, you know, it was kind of the, it was kind of the, the beautiful wooden uh, uh, touring car of the aviation, of general aviation. Wow. So you land at, uh, as a co-op at NASA and, yep. uh, and this is obviously a unique environment uh, because of, of the, the structure and everything else involved in it, but it also was this your first exposure to, you know, a, a government position and, and all the things that go along with that? Well, my father was the uh, state mathematics coordinator for Minnesota, state of Minnesota, State Department of Education. And, and I had actually worked two summers in the uh, State Department of Education, a little nepotism there, I guess. 
doing uh, state aids auditing, which is kind of like the tax returns, uh, kind of like working for the IRS. You get all these returns from the various uh, superintendents who wanted to get their state aid money, and we'd have to go through the forms and figure out where they were cheating. Um, and so I guess I, I had a background with government service before. It was state government service. Um, but, you know, NASA's interesting in that we have NASA employees and then we have contractors. And at, at NASA Johnson in mission operations, we really had a, a, about a 50-50 split between contractors and NASA. But we, we considered ourselves badgeless. I mean, we wore badges, but we didn't care what badge you wore, whether you were a NASA or a contractor. If you could do the job, you got recognized and, and you did the job. It didn't make any difference who you worked for. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that. So, and, and does that go back to the beginning of NASA program, the early NASA programs also, that whether you're Boeing, or Northrop Grumman, or anything else, it's all the same team? It really is, at least for, with flight operations. Now, there are other NASA centers that, that operate a little bit differently. Um, uh, when we'd go to the Kennedy Space Center, it felt a little bit more like a union shop where, you know, if a NASA employee touched a wrench, he was in big trouble because that was the job of the contractors who were maintaining things. Um, it's just different, a uh, different way of working. Um, but, but when I got to, to mission control and started sharing offices with guys, we'd have five guys to an office and, and, and all five people might work for a different company. I mean, mm. I would, might be the only NASA guy and there might be somebody from Philco and there might be somebody from Rockwell and somebody from Boeing and somebody from McDonnell Douglas. Um, and some of those guys were, uh, were went, went all the way back to Mercury and they, weren't, they didn't even have degrees. They came out of the military tracking sites so they knew how telemetry systems worked. They knew how communications systems worked. And um, if, if you could do the job, you did the job. And, and they had so much experience that, that they got in without a degree. And most of them went to night school and got a degree. So they, they at least had that. But um, yeah, it was, it was always very much a very egalitarian in, in MCC. Wow. Now, for people that, that have not read your book yet, uh, there's obviously an, an awful lot there uh, in, in understanding the inner workings of it and how all the different systems and organizations uh, function inside. But if you were to kind of boil things down a little bit so people understand what a flight director actually is sure. and what the different support groups are, I, th I found that that was one of the, one of the fascinating takeaways. So... When you see uh, mission control on TV, you see about a dozen people in a front room. And that front room is, the, is I mean, that's, that's, that's the big time, right? And those dozen people all work for the flight director who's in the center of the room. Now, the easiest thing I tell people is, um, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, there's a guy in a white vest and a crew cut. His name was Gene Kranz. He was actually played by Ed Harris. Uh, Failure is not an option. You know, this will be our finest hour. Gene Kranz was the flight director um, in that. And there were others, but, but he was it. And so you come into mission control and you see that front room. But what you don't see is you see the back room of support flight controllers that are supporting each one of those front room flight controllers. So each one of those dozen people in the front room might have um, a between, between two and ten people in a back room that supports them on their discipline. So life support or computers or communications or propulsion um, or navigation. And so it's a, it's a bit of a pyramid there. And everybody, everybody's inputs funnel back up to the flight director who has the ultimate authority to make decisions related to the, the safe and successful completion of the mission. Um, so it's, it's really a big team. Um, and, and that team is really, really important um, because I, I tell people the flight director might have a bigger picture than everybody else does, but everybody's important. I mean, you can't do the job without everybody. So, um, uh, in that regard, no positions more or less important than any other. Yeah. The, the other thing I thought was actually fascinating is, is even when you see a, a, sh a show like that, uh, you don't necessarily think about the fact that with a shuttle mission, you're dealing with such a long duration or ISS mm -hmm. or anything like that, that there is no single one flight director. Right. Like, right. So, yeah, as you did, you think of only one human being. Right. And and actually, so so to fly a mission takes um, four teams, let's say uh, three to run the round the clock 
operations once you're on orbit and one team which is a specialty team to do the ascent and the entry um and and uh you generally do ascent entry for a couple three four years and then you pop back into orbit stuff because ascent entry is very very intense and so you cycle in and out of the, the different positions but for any given mission um the the ascent team will be on for the launch and then the uh, orbit one team comes in or the orbit two team uh and then you cycle through the three teams and you work about um about nine hour shifts uh so you, uh, and eight hours you're on hot and then an hour for handover to the next team um and for instance apollo 13 good good reference movie uh gene was not the lead flight director for that mission um uh that was um that was glenn lunny and uh, glenn lunny and gene and then uh, a couple other guys so so gene just happened to be on when the failure occurred and uh glenn lunny came right on and, and said <laughs> what did you just do to my spaceship right gene and, and gene took his team offline and they started working those problems while glenn tried to tried to save the situation so um i was the lead flight director for nine shuttle missions i was a flight director total for 39 shuttle missions and then i was a flight controller before i was selected as flight director for quite a few quite a few missions before that so yeah it is a big team wow and and the lead flight so you, the lead flight director is in charge bar none of no matter who's right. on ship so you right. your so if, come back if, in right so when 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 uh, when the lead flight director the lead flight director about a about a year and a half before a mission that you're called into the flight into the, the chief flight director's office and we have about 10 about 10 flight directors at any one time in the office and um and you're you're basically said okay you're the lead flight director for sds 99 uh, the payload is space radar topography uh here's your crew here's your orbiter go make it happen and so you then call on the entire uh mission operations organization uh to uh which about six thousand people to uh, bring in the people you need to plan train for and execute the mission um and then uh once you're flying any flight director who's on console has the authority to make whatever decision is necessary at the time for the safe and successful completion of the mission um and you're trained for that but if you know it's a long-term thing something's broken but you don't really have to worry about it till tomorrow you generally wait till the lead flight director shows up to let it bounce off him because because he's got the most knowledge about that particular mission mm, that makes a lot of sense one, yeah. one of the other things that uh, I, I really really enjoyed was having insight into how the communication works because i think even to someone who's going to turn on c-span or watch nasa and see what's happening on this the idea of getting a primer in what you're listening to and why right. and what what the communication things are and understanding this term that you uh, explain and hopefully will explain to everybody on right now of loops and right. what that means right. is so, fascinating to me. Right, so every console has a key set, which is a like a big public access branch exchange of PADEX or uh, like a telephone keyboard. And you can listen to, you've got about 48 different um, uh, loops that you can listen to or talk on uh, that's specific to your console. There are probably 300 or 400 loops available and a loop is just a channel i don't know why we call them loops but but they're called this channel and so at any one time um any flight controller or flight director is probably listening to between 10 and 20 loops at once and you're listening to all these conversations going on um there's a flight director loop which is the prime execution loop and the, the public doesn't hear that um, we talk about things that it would scare the straights so to speak um you don't really <laughs> want it, people you, you don't always want to know what how the sausage is made and and then what you do here uh publicly usually is the air to grounds which are the channels or loops that go back and forth to the spacecraft and so the flight director can but doesn't talk on air to ground very often um it's really hard to talk and think at the same time so we have an astronaut who sits next to us, who's the capsule communicator of Capcom. Um, and they're the ones who talk back and forth to the crew because they've trained with the crew. They've, they've, they've probably flown themselves. So when, when the flight director say, hey, tell them this, they've got a, they, they can put a little filter on it and go, uh, I know what they're doing right now. Give them a minute, right, if they've got it. Or, or if I say, tell them this now, they tell it right now. And then they can blame the flight director for interrupting potty break or whatever. But, um, <laughs> so so um everybody's talking to us and everybody's listening to multiple loops and as a flight director i have access to every loop in the building but 
but I generally only listen to about 10 at once. And, and then we also have a telephone behind us, which if it rings on the flight director console, um, it's either the White House or it's uh, our wife saying, hey, on your way home, would you pick up milk and bread? Right? <laughs> that, that number was changed frequently because as soon as the number got out, we needed to change it. So. Wow. that's uh, And it's funny that that's the two things that it could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know a, a lot of people always or think when they when they do see those images of of what it looks like what flight control looks like uh what those things are and now i have that explanation of those grids of buttons are mainly the communication loops well a lot of them are communications loops and in the old control room we had lots and lots of push buttons that you saw in that picture you showed of that were talking to the big massive mainframe computers down in the in the basement so you didn't have an intranet or an intranet like we have today where you're running apps and programs when you pushed one of these buttons it actually told the computer to run a particular program or or you told it data and um in front of the uh, the, the right monitor there there's a kind of a colored set of buttons there those are that's the communication loops but the other uh, one of the other panels you could you could set up numerous buttons and 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 then when you hit execute that would tell the computer downstairs to do a particular function but you could also turn on all those lights at once. Don't hit the execute button, for heaven's sake, because you don't want that to happen. But then you could take your Pop-Tart and put it on top of that and put a book <laughs> over it. And in 10 minutes, you'd have a warm Pop-Tart because those were little in, incandescent light bulbs and it would warm it up for you. So yeah, now you know the <laughs> secret of how we age in the control center. And, and I don't want to give away all the good stuff, but I will say one of the things that was that was also very funny because there are some humorous stories in this book are ha having to do with uh, uh, these uh, handoffs. And this one was, I think, during a simulation where, you know, literally you're going down a list. And one of the things was that one of these was on fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we were uh, getting ready for a, getting ready for a simulation and it was a it was a big deal simulation. It was the the last simulation before the first flight after the Challenger accident. So I mean, we've been training for two and a half years. We had the entire world hooked up. We had we had um, uh, control centers around the world, and and we had to start on time. And the the flight director uh, Gary Cohen was giving this last minute brief, and he had to finish on time. And, he was saying, okay, so everybody, we've talked about what we're going to do, and we're all set to go, and uh, let's all go back to our loops. And uh, GC, who's the ground controller, he says, and uh, GC, the Capcom's console, is on fire. And he just said that very deadpan, and there was smoke coming out of the Capcom's console. One of the one of the black and white TV monitors had smoked and it was coming out. But it was very deadpan, yeah. Oh, and by the way, GC, the Capcom's console, is on fire. Two things. Is you, you guys are operating with some old equipment. <laughs> well, we were, but then... Then about um, oh, around 1993, 94, when I was selected as flight director, we commissioned the new control center. Um, we had so many smart, young, computer savvy kids coming to work for us. They, they started writing programs for offline computers and started doing all of these things that, that worked around the clunky old big mainframes. That sooner or later we could replace all the mainframes with all of these other computer programs so we built a new control center based on the new technology and that was that was uh, uh that's where we flew the last 15 years of the shuttle program or 20 years of the shuttle program and it worked uh, worked pretty well we had a lot lots smarter tools by that time did you uh was that just a natural fit for you getting into this environment of of constant simulation, constant training, and an immense amount of discipline? Did it fit with where you were coming from? Or was that something you had to adapt to? Uh, for me, it was perfect. I mean, I was I was a, a hog and slop, right? It was, uh, when I showed up, um, they showed me the training library, which was all the workbooks that had been prepared for the astronaut class of two years before, and all of the videos they had in all the training manuals for all the systems. And even though I was assigned to one small part of the shuttle program, I was I was checking out uh, videos every other night and I was taking home all the workbooks to learn all the systems. And I just loved it. Um, uh, I couldn't, I could, uh, when, when, when there was a simulation going on and I was not assigned to it, if I didn't have something going on in the office, 
that I needed to do, I'd go over there, plug into a back room um, and just watch the simulation because I wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, uh, as particularly about how a flight director worked, not just how um, my own discipline worked. And, and that's how we in the flight director office found new flight directors. We, we looked for kids who were, I say kids, we looked for young engineers who had that kind of focus and dedication um, as the potential new flight directors in the, for the future. Simulation, that, that is one of the things I found fascinating about how important that is and that that's really, we think of, of a launch is, is a very uh, defined, specific uh, thing that doesn't happen every single day. And right. understanding what happens in the downtime, I didn't realize there are so many simulations. Right. So we basically ran the control center 40 hours a week doing training, whether we were flying or not. Um, and a typical simulation lasted eight hours. You'd show up at, at 7.30 in the morning for an eight o'clock start or an 8.30 start. Uh, you'd get your console configured, get all your people ready to go. You'd pre-brief, you'd talk about what you're gonna do. Just like when you get in the cockpit before a takeoff in a multi-crew cockpit, you brief the lawn, you brief the takeoff, you make sure everybody knows what you're gonna do and then you go fly it. Um, so we would do a, 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 a pre-brief before the sim and then we'd run for eight hours. And it might be a specific part of a timeline like a rendezvous where you have a timeline that you're trying to meet. And at the same time, you've got these mean old nasty simulation people who are throwing in failures to try and stop you from accomplishing your goal. Um, or it might be just what we call a, a kind of a, a, a generic training sim of, of uh, uh, there was no timeline and you just sit there and they just throw even more failures on top of you to see if they could force you to stay on orbit or, or do, do an emergency deorbit. Um, and so those were a lot of fun. Um, and when we did a sim, we had a crew in the cockpit, and then we had an entire mission control team. Um, and you, we were so good at simulations that you could not tell the difference. If you walked into the control center, you would not be able to tell the difference of, of whether it was a real flight or a sim. It sounded the same. The data looked the same. We had the same level of concentration. We always told people, not don't just fly like you, like you train, but train like you fly. Um, and and there was there was no such thing as telling the flight director, well, flight, if this was a real day, we'd do this. That'll get you thrown out immediately because every day was a real day. Um, and I'll tell you that little story from the back end of the book. What was real fun is that in order to do generic sims, which weren't specific to a mission, which were we did more generic sims than we did mission specific uh, to train people and get them their licenses, if you will, get them their certifications for their consoles. Um, you needed to have a crew of astronauts in the cockpit all day and you needed to have a, a full team and in the last two years of the shuttle program we only had a couple more flights left um all of the train all of the crews that that were assigned to those two those couple of missions were training for their missions um and if they weren't assigned they were off looking for a new job or training for the space station and so we didn't have any astronauts to do generic training but we need to do generic training so we created a group of uh, flight directors flight controllers and instructors we had the astronaut core, spelled N-O-T-S, the astronauts. And um, I was one of the commanders of one of those crews, which was a lot of fun because uh, then my week was um, was uh, spend a day in the control center as a flight director, training flight controllers, another day in the cockpit as a commander for eight hours doing the, doing the, doing the astronaut thing, another day back in the control center doing evaluations or something like that. And then I only had two days to figure out how to stay the heck out of my office because I hated office work. So, you know, it was a, it was a great time. That's fascinating. I mean, and, and given all of your experience in, in aviation and having this really strong decades of experience in simulations and, and how important that is, do you think that we can do things very differently about how we how we you do that in flight training? Because that's not how simulations are are used in flight training, right? It's very rare, once a year. It's not it's it's Yeah, it's, you know, when when you when you look at how we did flight training for the shuttle program, you would the, the closest analog to that in in um, airline flying or or commercial flying is uh, line-oriented flight training, loft, which is, you know, you don't show up to be swatted with a bunch of failures. You show up to fly from Denver to Pittsburgh and you plan the flight and you get in the cockpit with your crew and you start flying from Denver to Pittsburgh. And then along the way, the instructors throw in problems for you to solve, which might be, 
an engine out a v1 cut on takeoff but that's 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 mechanical right you know you know what to do and you got to practice that and you got to show you can do it but it's more like okay you're you know you're heading to pittsburgh and you just got word that um pittsburgh's closed where are you going to go well i'm going to go to someplace else and well now they've got icing and you know you're running low on fuel and <clears throat> Stuart has just called and you've got a sick passenger and where are you going to go and and by the way you've just you've just lost your up gear uh, nose gear up light and stuff like that so that's line oriented flight training and, and if you're doing that complicated kind of training, that's that's the kind of stuff you really should be doing to really, really test your crew and your cockpit resource management. Now, when we're talking about uh, general aviation light aircraft training, you know, I think simulators are really good for um, doing the same kind of training for instrument flying, but you've got to have that background of stick and rudder, uh, hands-on flying, which I think you really only get in the airplane these days. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's rare to find an airplane, uh, a simulator for a GA airplane that flies well enough that you can get that same feel. Right, I mean, that certainly makes a lot of sense. I think one of the one of the things that, that occurred to me, and, and even as you're saying this is, but in the GA world, I mean, even people that do, do have simulators, we always talk about like, well, you just need to, you need to fly more. You need to get out. You need, as you said, you, you need to get the time. You need to get the actual IMC or the simulated IMC time. Um, and yet, even that is not going to happen uh, all that frequently for a lot of people. And so the no. question is how to fill that, because that's what you did at NASA. And, and it is right. you're constantly filling that time by forcing some simulation, right. no matter what. Well, right. So here's the here's the here's the big difference. We were getting paid for it, right? That was our job. <laughs> that, that was our job, eight hours a day, and we were training even when we weren't in the simulator. When we were writing procedures or making a flight plan, we were training because mm -hmm. you build a flight plan for a mission, and in doing so, you learned all of the puts and takes for that mission, so that when you got into flight and things didn't work the way you wanted to, you had replanned that mission numerous times and you'd gotten yourself hooked up, hooked into it, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, we were getting paid for all that time, so of course you're trained. It is a real problem, or I won't say problem, it's a real challenge. I don't like the word problem, I like challenges. Um, in GA, you know, we joke sometimes that the average home builder, home builder flies his home built 22 hours a year. That's 10 hours to Oshkosh, 10 hours back from Oshkosh, and two hours for him for $100 hamburgers. And it's really hard to stay current if you're doing that. Um, I do a lot of training personally. Um, I was telling people that uh, that last October I actually had to get a flight review for the first time in 20 years because I always have a check ride, I always have a rating ride, I always have a something or other for a type rating, <coughs> excuse me, and, and then COVID hit, and we weren't traveling, and we weren't doing that kind of stuff, so I actually had to go find, find a friend and, uh, and get an actual honest-to-goodness flight review. Um, so, so I'm fortunate to be in the business where I'm flying lots of different airplanes, I'm training to fly lots of different airplanes. Um, I'm doing a lot of flight testing and things like that. But the average pilot doesn't have that. And, you know, one of the problems we have in experimental aviation is even getting people to do a good phase one test program for their new home build. It's usually 40 hours. And um, a lot of times people talk about, well, I got to fly off my 40 hours. God, I hate that phrase. I just despise that phrase. You're not flying off. You're testing the airplane for 40 hours. Because what too many people do is they fly the same hour 40 times. And they haven't learned anything about the airplane. They haven't taught themselves anything about flying it. Um, and so you really, thats that was the genesis of the of the EAA flight test manual, which I, I was I had a, a, a minor role in that, um, it was to get that manual out there so that, because honestly, if you tell people, you should be out there testing that airplane, and they said, I don't know how. We said, well, okay, you're right. So we'll write a book that tells you how. Now go and do that. And um, and so that trains people really well. But, but how you keep the average GA pilot who's just going out to fly their Cessna for $100 hamburgers, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know a lot of people that do have simulators. We even have a, a really good one here, and and I think about it, and I think I'm remiss because I know that the boys use it quite a bit, 
uh, but the reality is it should probably be on on my list of like an hour a week you know even if it's just an hour a week i'm going to plan an ifr flight i'm going to execute yep. at least at some point i'm going to get out there so that the downtime of when you're not flying you're you're doing something you at least could do at home. I know I could, I'm guilty of that one. <laughs> it's true. And and forget about logging it. It's not about logging the time. It's no, about no. the time. All right. So you don't need to have a loggable phase whatever simulator and a CFI there to sign it off for you. I mean, it's nice if you want to pad your logbook, but you don't need that. I used to fly Microsoft Flight Simulator a lot um, because it was a good way to practice uh, instrument procedures. It, it wasn't about, I just used the autopilot. I didn't even use the joystick, right? I was just using the autopilot, but it was making me think about procedures. It was making me read the uh, the approach plates and making me read all of this stuff and plan it. And, and the best way to do it is to use something that's about twice, use an airplane that's about twice as fast as what you normally fly, right? So if you're flying a 172 on instruments, go fly a, a citation in the simulator, right? Learn the learn the glass cockpit and fly the citation. Um, if you're flying something faster, fly something faster um, because it makes you think quicker when you're in the instrument world. And so then when you actually go and fly your 172 in the instrument uh, environment, you're kind of going, oh, this is really boring. This is really slow, right? Which is what it should be. I love that. That's a fascinating thing. That's probably, that 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 is a wonderful takeaway because you're right. I mean, when we look at like, normal graduation up to larger aircraft, faster aircraft, things like that. It's always drinking from a fire hose in the beginning. And I think for, for most people, at least, certainly for myself, when you do a major step up of an aircraft, it your first reaction is, I don't know how anyone does this. Like, right. I don't know how you all this. But once you get used to it, you realize you can process at that speed. You're right. You're, you have this, this time to think and process right. and your own aircraft. They wouldn't normally have. Right. I I used to have a, an SR-71 model on my Microsoft Flight Simulator. And, you know, I've got some friends who flew the SR-71. And and uh, as they used to say is, you've never been lost until you've been lost at Mach 3. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you really had to stay ahead of the airplane. Of course, to them, I used to then say, well, I understand that. But, you know, <clears throat> space shuttle, Mach 25. I'm just saying. Right. You know. <laughs> That is that is very very true. Now um, you touched on something else. I'd like to get into the kit plane world a little bit because of sure. course you're with kit planes and right. have an immense amount of experience building aircraft. And you certainly mentioned about um, the uh, flight testing and your involvement in that. Mm -hmm. uh, kit planes have obviously have evolved as an industry so that you have ones on one end of the spectrum. Let's say where you are just assembling something exactly the way it is told. And you're not really um, uh, breaking ground and taking, you know, you're not experimenting as much, let's say. Right. Uh, uh, maybe your flight test program is ringing some things out to make sure you did it correctly. Then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which might be either plans built or things like that. And certainly the project we've got behind us here is, is anything but step-by-step. Um, -step. Here you go. Uh, so... Tell me a little bit about the, work, the different types of building that you've done and how people can approach these different types of projects. Sure. So um, one thing I will, I will say is that no two experimental airplanes have ever been built exactly alike. Mm -hmm. um, even those that are supposed to have been built exactly alike have minor variations. Um, there are no minor variations. I tell people about the, the second flight of my RV3 where we ended up on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere because we had changed the fuel valve handle. Just the handle. We didn't like we didn't like the handle that came on it. So we put a really spiffy CNC machined one and and it had a set screw that came loose and spun on the shaft and trapped us between tanks. Right. Um, so there are no truly minor changes. And, and that's the kind of thing you need to test. But um, there are uh, today. Today's people really like to assemble their kits. Um, there's not a lot of machining and the like. Um, the newer RV kits are like that. A lot of the a lot of the modern kits. I was in uh, at Sling Aviation in Johannesburg, South Africa, a couple months ago, looking at their kits. They're just fabulous. Um, it's hard to make a mistake with them. But but you can still go buy kits which are basically a box of material and some basic plans, and you have to fabricate 
So we have those two kind of differences, uh, assembly and fabrication. Um, uh, a couple of the airplanes I built uh, required a lot of fabrication, the RV-3 for one. Uh, one of the Sonics, uh, we're building a Sonics motor glider right now that we're, we're building as an electric motor glider. We're putting an electric motor on the front of it. Um, and, and it's a, an older kit, so there was a lot of fabrication with that, uh, making brackets and, and making longerons and things like that. Um, when my Sonics, Subsonics jet showed up, the canopy was already fit. The, the windshield was already installed. So, you know, th it was almost hard to find stuff to do on that kit because it was it was so, the, all the fabrication was really done. It was really assembly. Um, and so depending upon the level, your level of comfort with what you're doing, um, uh, I, I always tell people that if you have a really good handyman's background and you've had a chance to work on it on aircraft, then, then the more primitive kits, that's not a pejorative term, but the more primitive kits um, are, are appropriate for you. But if if you're one of those people who, when I ask you, do you have tools, and you bring out one of these little prepackaged kits of wrenches from from Costco, <laughs> and you say, "Yes, I've got tools," I go, "Well, let's let's look at one of these more modern kits, right? That's a little more assembly." And once you've built one of those, then you can decide whether you want something more challenging. Yeah, yeah. I remember when, when certainly when some of the of our stuff arrived, and a lot of it was rolled sheets of aluminum with, uh, you know, Sharpie on it, where they yes. had drawn, this is the part you're going to need to do. And it's, it's the question is, how, what does that do? Does that put a smile on your face of like, yeah. this is going to be cool? Or does that make yeah. your heart sink? So, yeah. you know, and that and that's that's what you have to face. Um, and, you know, just building an airplane, uh, completing an airplane is a life-changing experience. It really is. Um, to put the amount of time and effort, people, this is not this is not just remodeling your bathroom, okay? This is real, real complicated work, um, but but it's very doable with modern kits. Um, and, and you can go to whatever level you want. Um, in the early days of, of kit building, um, there were extremely complete kits. Uh, the, the old joke about the Kristen Eagle when that came out was that, you know, they even had razor blades taped to the outside to help you open the boxes. Um, and they were incredibly complex. Um, then you had then you had more primitive kits. I, I've got a great picture I float, that floats around here of the wing kit for a asset, the little uh, single seat uh, race plane, which is the wood wing. It's just some sticks of wood in a box and, and some plants. And you start with that, right? You weld up your fuselage and, and the like. But um, you, you really have to build what's appropriate to you. And, and, and you also have to decide if you're a builder or a flyer or both. When people say, well, I'm trying to decide whether I, sh I want an RV7 and I'm trying to decide whether I should build it or buy one. I say, hands down, you should, you should buy one. <laughs> they said, really? You, you don't know anything more about me than what I just said. I said, look, in order to build an airplane, you have to have an overriding passion to build the airplane or there's a very good chance you won't complete it. Um, and so if you have to ask whether you want to build or not, you may not be ready to build. Excellent, it's a very, very good point. Tell me a little bit about your, uh, you've done a lot of kits and your work, kits, <laughs> projects, all sorts of stuff. Tell, tell, right. tell me what, what have you built and what's in your stable now? Right, so what's in our stable right now, um, the first one I didn't build is the RV6 that my wife brought to the marriage. We met at a fly-in, actually, and that RV6 is kit number four, built by Mike Seeger, the uh, tra factory transition training pilot years ago. We, uh, I had an RV8 that I built from a quick build kit a couple years before I met her, and uh, and it's a very stock RV8 that I've been flying for about 18 years now, and uh, it's got 2,100 hours on it. It's a really great go-to machine. And then when we got married, my wife and I got married, we decided we wanted to build something. So we built an RV3. Um, and uh, that was quite a challenge because it is a, an early kit, which requires a lot more jigging and things like that. Um, and then uh, we, uh, we uh, after I retired from NASA, we were looking for a project and I was editor in chief at, at Kit Planes. Uh, we just kind of wanted to have a project in house just to have something to be working on for if I needed an article. Um, and so we bought this Xenos motor glider, which has become a, a long, long-term project because along the way, um, we decided we wanted a bush plane. And so we got involved in a half-built uh, Dream Tundra, which we helped finish. Um, that took about a year, year and a half, and we flew that. 
And then we end up inheriting our partner's half when he decided that he was too old to really learn how to fly that. And so we ended up with the Tundra, um, which is a, a Cessna 170 class uh, all metal bush plane. And then, um, and then along came the opportunity for me to fly the little subsonics jet from Sonics. And, um, and I was the first uh, non-factory guy to fly it and got type rated in it. And that kind of set the hook. And I realized that even though uh, John Monet at Sonic said, hey, anytime you're in Oshkosh, you can fly one of our jets, no problem. Every time I was back there, they were down for annual or they weren't in town. And I realized if I wanted one, I was going to have to build one. My wife said, go ahead. So so I got that. So, so our stable right now is the RV3, the RV6, the RV8, the Tundra, uh, the, uh, the, the little jet, which I fly about one hour a week. And then, uh, and then the Xenos motor glider, which is very close to being finished. And it's been very close to being finished for a while. Our real problem is we don't have room to keep it once we put the wings on. Um, uh, <laughs> so we, we're trying to figure out where it's going to live once we get the wings on, and then we'll get it inspected and fly it. That's a long list. That is very, very cool. <laughs> yeah. it, it covers the gamut. It's a lot of interesting airplanes to have. And uh, the trick is to keep them all in annual and, uh, and stay current in all of them. And so my routine, my routine week is to fly each airplane at least once a week. Wow, isn't that wonderful? And we and and that just keeps your hours up because the more airplanes you add to your stable, it's all you're doing is increasing your currency by making sure that you have another hour by your rule that you have to fly that week. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And so living out here, um, we're just, we're not that far from Navy Fallon. So if you you go and you see Top Gun and you see him flying over the desert, so it's kind of our area. And so we we've got a lot of uncontrolled airspace. We got airspace. To, to, you know, we can fly in the mountains, we can fly in the deserts, we can fly up over Lake Tahoe. It, it has a lot of fun places to go fly. Do you have some some go-to folks that, that you use in your circle for uh, kind of like engineering checks and balances of things you want to do differently and things like that? Yeah, I do. And that's really important um, because I've got I've got guys in my I've got guys in my little black book that most people don't have. Um, if I'm doing something on an RV, I call up Dick Van Grinsven. Um, if I've got something I'm going to change on one of the airplanes, I just call the, the appropriate engineer. Um, and then I've got uh, some former engineering colleagues uh, from uh, NASA who I can talk about generic things if we're trying to trying to make a modification aerodynamically. And uh, frankly, if I'm doing some test operation that I've never done before and I want to check and balance on, on my plan and what I'm doing, I've got Former astronauts, I can I can call up and that were, you know, test pilots for the Navy and uh, and and the Air Force, and I can say, hey, let me bounce this off here and off you and see what I missed. So, it it is all about teamwork and using the resources, um, and not just trying to be uh, not trying to be uh, Clark Gable and test pilot with the silk scarf and the the you know the leather helmet and doing it all by yourself. Yeah, I think it, it is fascinating how the world of building a, a kit aircraft uh, or an aircraft of any kind is is really about community. Uh, it brings you into a whole support group. People don't do it on, on their own in a vacuum. No, and, and it is amazing. So I'm an engineer, and that means that that I'm an introvert. I mean, it, we truly are. You know, um, you know how you find an extroverted engineer. He he looks at your shoes when he's talking to you, um, and uh, and so it's not natural for me to, to really work with a large to, to have a big community to have a social community. But but it has developed over the years um, in the various worlds, uh, you know, in in the RV world, in the Sonics world, and the in, in the EAA world. Um, I've done a number. I've been a num number of volunteer positions at EAA National. Um, and, uh, and then being in the magazine, I end up working with almost all of the suppliers, uh, uh, writing articles and the like. So, so it is a very big community and it really is about community. Uh, Paul Pobaresny said, uh, many years ago, you know, you show up at Oshkosh for the airplanes, but you stay for the people. Right. Right. And, and how did you wind up at Kit Plains and in the role that you play there? <laughs> um, you know, I guess I've been writing uh, all my life. I think that uh, there are a lot of Minnesota writers because what the best way to become a good writer, I think, is to read a lot. And when you grow up in Minnesota, you read a lot because there's six months of winter and you're stuck inside reading. 
Um, so I've always written a lot and I wrote a lot for um, early type club magazines. Uh, I was a Grumman guy for many, many years and then uh, started started contributing to the early online forums for various um, types and the like. And uh, and I get this call, I get this email from Mark Cook, who's the editor-in-chief of Kit Plains Magazine, uh, saying, Paul, I've been reading your stuff on Vans Air Force. I want you to write for my magazine. He says, you can do anything you want. You can write features. You can be test, you can do test, test evaluations. You can have a column, whatever you want. And so I said, well, that's great. I'm, uh, I, uh, I'm working for NASA. I need to get permission to do this on the side. And so we did that. And, and so I was writing for Kit Plains for several years before I retired. And then I get this call from Mark saying, hey, I want to go on and do something else, so we'd like you to be editor-in-chief. And I said, well, that's great, but I already got this job. I'm you know, flying space shuttles. They said, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll give it to somebody else for a little while, and then as soon as you're free, you can have it. So I ended up, when I retired from NASA, um, I took over the magazine, and I did that for about seven years uh, as editor-in-chief. And you know the worst thing about running a monthly magazine? They expect you to do one every single month. Right? <laughs> and I was supposed to be retired. So, um, so it turned out that Mark Cook had done his done his thing in the motorcycle world and was it coming back to uh, aviation and and I snagged him at Sun and Fun a couple of years ago and I said, hey, how would you like Kit Flames back? Because um, I I would like I want to I want to take the promotion that they're offering to editor at large. Editor at large is the best title in publishing because you get to do whatever you want and you don't have to do anything you don't want. You don't you're not in charge of production um, and your name stays on the masthead. So. Uh, so that's that's the, my that's my aviation writing career. That's wonderful. And how how was your air venture going around and seeing all the the latest new things there? You know, air venture is interesting for me because I overbooked myself this year with with forums. I I usually do three forums, and I said sure I'll do my three forums. And then I got a, and then I got a call saying hey we'd like you to do some book signings at the bookstore. And I said okay I'll do those. That was two more hours. And then I got a call from. Um, from uh, somebody to do a safe. Oh, I got. I asked. I was asked to be MC for the theater in the woods on Monday night, the Vans 50th. I said, sure. How can I turn that down? And then I got drafted to do the uh, pilot proficiency center all afternoon on Wednesday. And so next thing I knew, I didn't have any time left. So I really didn't. I really didn't get to see that much air venture this year. Uh, usually, I, I don't go for the air shows, and I know that's sacrilege, but. You you work you you work the show right just like I oh, work yeah. the show as a media <laughs> nearly person. thirty years oh yeah <laughs> you know every once in a while you notice this jet noise going by and you go oh the air show must be on I never watch the air shows I and this year I was almost unaware of them um, but uh, except, for, yeah, except for the Wednesday night air show after you've done it for for so many years working the show the air show tends to mean well, I'm sorry what what were you just saying <laughs> that's right you're just trying to work it you know and. And, and what most people don't realize for air, for air venture, I usually show up at six in the morning to go test something before the day gets busy. Then I'm back by seven before the, the, the field gets nuts. Then I've got the whole show that goes to five and I've got to visit people and do forums and the like. And then, uh, and then you'd think, well, great. Now I've got my time off, but no, that's when the receptions start. Yes. <laughs> so you've got receptions for all the manufacturers you need to go to. At about nine o'clock, I straggle home and back to the house that we rent and then i've got to write for a couple hours to put material on the web so and then it just cranks up so i'm not complaining but i don't get to see much of the show i just get to i get to talk with some friends and i get to i get to uh to really get involved i guess so was there um, was there anything here i stayed through uh friday i think this year got there on thursday before the show and stayed through friday was there anything that even just walking by kind of caught your eye? There's always, is, is, was there something that, that you looked at and, were, and was like, oh, well, that's interesting? Oh, golly. Yeah. What was it this year? Um, I, noticed, I noticed we were walking around. Someone had a, a new kit proposal. You know, you always have those. The new yeah. kit proposal. Well, there are lots of those. The one that looked like a uh, a Raptor or <laughs> oh yes 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 yeah I know the, the it had a forty horsepower engine yes. yeah I I didn't get a chance to really look closely at that um, but I did I did uh, see a couple of things in the home built world um, you know the new the new high wing slings they showed up the, of course the RV fifteen um, yes I, I I will admit that I had had access to the RV fifteen for about the past year. Um, going back and forth to vans and and talking with those their good friends up there um so that wasn't a surprise to me but it was really fun to see the public's reaction to that 
Um, and uh, and then um, there is a there is a, a two holer uh, shoot I can't remember the name uh, Timber Tiger aircraft. Um, it looks like an old PT uh, PT nineteen kind of like yes. airplane um, that that I've got my eye on, and we're talking about doing a flight review for them. And it just looks like it'd be a lot of fun to fly. That's awesome. Absolutely. So much fun. So in the last amount of time, I just want to go back again about to, you know, to your book and make sure that, uh, that people understand, of course, that there's so, so much in that. And in that experience, uh, you must spend quite a bit of time, I'm sure, talking about things and going back in story. One of the things I think that was fascinating is the experience that you really uh, had internationally. You worked with um, uh, people from the, the Russian Space Agency, you worked for uh, people all around. Is there anything from that, all, all that experience that you had that you've taken back and now used throughout your life or can talk to people about? It really is. Um, I will say that I am a student of science fiction uh, from an early age. I read a lot of science fiction. I'm not fanatic, but I, but I read a lot. And, and, and one common thread in, in near-term science fiction is that we go to space as a planet, not as a country. And, and that is something that I learned early on. There are 16 countries involved in the International Space Station, and I work with people from all of them. Um, and, and I think that, it's, that I take that into my, my worldview. You know, people say, how big is the world to you? And I say, well, it's about that big because that's the screen up front in Mission Control. And we went around it once every 90 minutes. Um, and, and when I look at the Earth from space through cameras, or I look at Google Earth, or I look at a at foreflight, I have a much broader view, um, and I don't see the borders so much. Um, and, and I enjoy working with people from all over the, the world. It's interesting how US-centric aviation is to a certain extent. When I was in Johannesburg, as I mentioned, in their stock room, all of their hardware was in aircraft spruce bags, <laughs> right? It came from aircraft yeah. spruce in the United States, and then it would go in a kit, and it would come back to the United States, right? Um, and so um, I really enjoy interfacing with people all over the world, and the internet allows us to do that. Uh, the past couple of years with COVID, I've been talking not just to EA chapters in the United States, but I've been talking to EA chapters all over the world which is fabulous because it takes no more time and effort than it does to talk to somebody here in the States. And I don't even have to wear pants if I don't want to. Right? <laughs> you know? uh, so, uh, so uh, that it, it gives you a, 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 when you, when you get involved in space flight, you have a global perspective and that stays with you forever. That makes a lot of sense. And, and even from an engineering perspective as well, it seems like, you know, you talked a lot about how, the Russian space program just did things very, very, very differently, but yet it works. And there's a lot learned from that. Right, it, it's never better or worse, really. It's always different. And so different is, you, you can start with something that is different and then you can evaluate whether it's better or worse. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. absolutely. Well, Paul, I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining us here this evening on Social Flight Live. I, the, the book is Shuttle, Houston. Uh, I will show a picture of that again up on the screen so people can see that. I, I, uh, as a matter of fact, actually, I'm going to show my favorite, which is one that you have. You can actually tell me that what this is. <laughs> so I, I, I mentioned I have friends who in interesting places, and I have one friend who says, I need a copy of your book. He says, I do all my reading above it, above 60,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you too, pilot. So I gave him a copy of the book, and that's a picture of the book uh, 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 in the YouTube cockpit above 60,000 feet. So, uh, and, and, and you can't, and, you, and, I, and I'm not giving away his name. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Well, the book is Shuttle Houston. I can't recommend it enough. Thank you, Paul, so much for joining Thank us you. here this evening on Social Flight Live and for everything that you do for the general aviation community. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening, as usual, to join us here on Social Flight Live. Next week, August 23rd at 8 p.m., we are back with Melissa Burns, aerobatics performer, base jumper. There are 
So let me tell you, she is a hoot. It's going to be a lot to, a lot of fun that evening. On Tuesday, August 30th at 8 p.m., Boeing 737 educator, aer aircraft mechanic, pilot, CFI, Melvin Williams will be here with us. And on Tuesday, September 6th, Greg Hughes of Vans Aircraft is going to be here. We're going to talk about the RV-15 and all sorts of other things going on inside at Vans Aircraft. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight Live, Blue Skies.